Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be examining stories of strange things beneath the sea. Now, you might have heard of the story of Andromeda, a princess chained to a rock by the seaside as a sacrifice to... And you probably thought I was about to say the Kraken, but that is incorrect. This is because movies lie to you. More on that later. Now, the original myth has Andromeda as the daughter of the king and queen of Ethiopia. And after she made a boast that her beauty was greater than that of a group of sea nymphs called the Nereids, this caused Poseidon, god of the sea, to become enraged. And Poseidon sent a sea creature called the Ketos to attack and terrorize the coastline of Ethiopia. Her parents, Cepheus and Cassiopeia, consulted an oracle as to what to do, and on the oracle's advice, they order that Andromeda be sacrificed to the creature in the way that I described earlier. But before the Cetus can swallow her, the hero Perseus comes along, slays the Cetus, and rescues Andromeda. Now, the name, the Cetus, probably refers to a very large whale. Of course, the Clash of the Titans films of modern times have created some confusion here because they call the sea creature the Kraken, but the Kraken is actually a sea creature from Norse mythology, the people who are often called Vikings from Scandinavia, and it may be related to stories of giant squids. On the other hand, some locational confusion in the story eventually crept in, where the coastline of Ethiopia suddenly became the harbor of Joppa or Joppa, today the harbor of Tel Aviv in Israel, the name now rendered as Jaffa or Jaffa. This change of venue seems to date to the Roman period, where we have two Roman-era authors, Pausanias, the Greek travel writer, who states that the water in the region around Joppa was still stained red in his day from the blood of the Cetus, because rather than using the head of Medusa to turn the Cetus into stone, in most versions of the story, Perseus uses his sword to kill the monster. And Josephus, in his history of the Jewish revolt against the Romans in the first century AD, states that the chains that held Andromeda could still be seen on the cliffs overlooking the sea in his own day. Pliny the Elder states that the bones of the creature were actually recovered and brought back to Rome and put on public display, and that it had ribs that were thicker than those of an elephant. This sounds very much like the travel writer Pausanias's account of seeing the preserved bodies of tritons, or mermen, both in Rome and also in the Greek city of Tanagra, and he describes them as having gills and scales, like a blend of man and fish. The one in Tanagra, he says, had been attacking women who had come down to the sea for purifying themselves for a religious festival and that the men of Tanagra were able to kill it by enticing it out of the water with a bowl of wine, which it drank, passed out, and then one of them chopped off its head with an axe. Anyway, to return to whales, because the mythological creature, the Cetus, was probably based upon the whale, whales do seem to have been hunted in the ancient Mediterranean. The Roman imperial writer Oppian of the 2nd century AD composed a really bizarre poem called the Haleutica, about fish and fishing. And the last section of this poem describes whale hunting, where the sailors attach to a hook a large chunk of meat, such as the shoulder of a bull, attach the hook to a chain, drop this into the sea. The whale snatches at it and tries to dive. However, they attach to the chain inflated skins. 
And because the whale is unable to pull those down, eventually the whale tires and surfaces. And then Opian goes into a description of the fight between the whalers and the whale that has overtones of some kind of Homeric struggle of heroes. Pliny the Elder speaks of a killer whale, which was killed on the orders of the Emperor Claudius in the harbor at Ostia, which was the main port of the city of Rome, and that this killer whale had fed upon hides in a cargo of a ship that had wrecked and became so engorged on these hides that it became lodged in the sand, and the Romans used spears and nets to capture and kill the beast. Procopius, a historian who lived in the 6th century AD in Constantinople, so this is the early Byzantine period, describes a very large whale that everyone nicknamed Porphyrius, or Purple, that lived in the Bosporus Strait near Constantinople, and that it sank boats and terrified the populace for over 50 years before it brought about its own end by beaching itself after chasing a group of dolphins. Procopius gives a measurement of 30 cubits by 10 cubits. The Roman cubit corresponded to about one and a half feet in the system we use here in the U.S. So that means Porphyrius was about 45 feet long or 14 meters and about 15 feet wide or four and a half meters. Procopius says that the locals butchered the whale's carcass and I'll bet they had quite a feast afterward. Once again, mythology provides paradigms for this. We have Theseus diving into the sea to recover a ring tossed into it by King Minos. Remember, King Minos built the labyrinth to house the Minotaur on Crete, and Theseus later kills the Minotaur. We also have a minor god of the sea named Glaucus, who started out as a mortal man, a fisherman, but after swallowing an herb that granted immortality, there was just one side effect— it turned him into a kind of hybrid man-fish. He then became the patron god of divers. Glaucus is said to have loved Scylla, a woman who was later transformed into a monster, and had a counterpart monster, Charybdis. These two creatures were believed to live on opposite sides of the Strait of Messina, which separates Sicily from the toe of Italy. Anyway, back to diving. Herodotus describes a diver named Scylius, from a city-state called Scione, which is in the northern Aegean. Scylius was the most renowned diver of the early 5th century BC, and Herodotus says that Scylius recovered wreckage from Persian ships that were sunk by a storm near Mount Pelion in eastern Greece. This is the fleet that accompanied Xerxes in his famous invasion of the Greek mainland in the Second Persian War. But Scalius really didn't want to work for the Persians, the story goes, so he defected to the Greek side, supposedly by swimming undetected, which means he didn't have to service for air, from two points Aphetai to Artemision, a distance of about nine miles or 15 kilometers. It's amusing because Herodotus doubts this story and says he probably took a boat. There's also a tradition, however, that Scalius and his daughter Hydne, who was also a diver, actually contributed to the destruction of Xerxes' fleet because they had anchored themselves to try to ride out the storm 
And Scalise and Hidney swam underneath, either right before the storm hit or even during the storm, which seems unlikely. But the story is that they cut the anchor ropes, setting the ships adrift and causing far greater destruction. This story is in the travel writer Pausanias, who claims to have seen statues of both Scalise and Hidney. And he throws in the interesting detail that only virgin women can dive in that manner. I have no clue what the origin of that idea is, but probably just the ancient Greeks being patriarchal again. Now, that activity is something close to combat diving, such as the frogmen of the U.S. Navy or other similar navies around the world. There's other attestations of this, too. For example, Thucydides describes that when the Athenians and their allies besieged a group of Spartans on the island of Sphacteria in southwestern Greece, that swimmers took food in leather sacks across the strait to them. He also says that divers swam under the water of the harbor to escape detection, carrying skins attached to them by cords, presumably around their necks, filled with poppy seed mixed with honey and linseed oil. Most likely these are medical supplies meant to treat wounds. The Spartans went so far as to not only offer very high pay for this work, they even offered freedom to helots, members of the state-owned slave class that they had, who volunteered. Later in the war, when the Athenians were attacking the city of Syracuse in Sicily, the Syracusans had long before pounded wooden stakes into the bottom of the harbor to provide anchorage, and the Athenians sent divers to saw those off. Another example from Greek history is Alexander the Great's siege of the city of Tyre in modern-day Lebanon, Tyre being a walled city on an island about a half mile off of the shoreline, and the water being relatively shallow in the area around it. This led Alexander to order his soldiers to construct a mole to connect the island to the mainland and enable him to have his soldiers pull up catapults, battering rams, various siege engines, and towers to get through the walls and capture the city. The Tyrians did everything they could to stop this, of course, including fire ships that they would ram into the construction area. They also threw rocks over the walls onto the mole right in front of their fortifications to prevent Alexander's siege engines from approaching the wall. Alexander's ships anchored close by so that the men could remove the rocks by hand, but the Tyrians sent divers to cut the anchor ropes and set those ships adrift. Alexander ordered his men to use chains for their anchors instead, and this thwarted the efforts of the Tyrians, and the city was captured. We can also point to several examples of divers being used in warfare from the Roman period. The historian Dio Cassius says that one of Caesar's lieutenants attempted to block the harbor at Aricum in Epirus, northwestern Greece, against the fleet of Pompey by sinking ships at the mouth of the harbor loaded down with stones. However, Pompey countered this tactic by sending divers to clear the stones from the ships and refloat them. They then dragged these ships out of the way so that Pompey's fleet could enter the harbor. Incidentally, the word in Latin for diver, believe it or not, was urinator. That is connected to urina, referring to urine, but they both come from a root related to moisture. There's actually a parallel to that that's pretty amusing, too, in that anus, in Latin, depending on how it's used, they had two different nouns from two different groupings or declensions. One version of the noun anus refers to a ring, and that's how we get the anatomical connection. However, the other meaning of anus is old woman. Yes, you heard it here first. Amaze your friends with this choice tidbit of information.
During a civil war between Septimius Severus, the eventual founder of the Severan dynasty of emperors, and one of his rivals named Piscanius Niger, there was a battle in 194 AD where Severus besieged the city of Byzantium, which had taken Niger's side in the conflict. This is the city that is later going to be renamed Constantinople and is now known as Istanbul. During the siege, Severus's fleet was in the harbor of Byzantium, but the Byzantines sent divers out to hammer spikes into the hulls of the ships below the waterline, attach ropes to them, and drag the ships onto the shore. Dio Cassius is also our source for this account, and he adds an amusing detail that there were merchants who wanted to sell their wares at Byzantium, but couldn't because of Severus's blockade. So when they found out what was happening, they sailed into the harbor and mingled with the warships and sort of, you could say, allowed their ships to be taken in this way, pretending that they were actually being captured or hijacked, but then sold their cargoes at great profit once they were on the shore. The story of Scalias recovering some of the wreckage from the Persian ships relates to other tales of salvage diving. The Roman historian Livy tells an account of King Perseus of Macedon, who fled his capital at Pella after being defeated by a Roman army at the Battle of Pydna in 168 BC. He had his royal treasure aboard the ships, but thought it would slow them down too much, so he ordered it all to be thrown overboard. He later calmed down, realized that the Romans weren't necessarily in hot pursuit of him, and hired divers to recover the treasure. But when the work was done, he had those divers killed so that the story wouldn't get out that he had panicked. Actually, as it turns out, the Romans did capture him, and he spent the rest of his life imprisoned in Italy. Now, that strange poetic essay by Opian that I mentioned earlier in this episode, the Haleutica, dedicated a section of his work to divers who recovered sponges. He says that they would actually hold on to lead weights that would make them descend. If you've ever gone diving, you know about the problem of equalizing pressure in the ears. There are references to ancient divers puncturing their eardrums. Opian also says that these sponge divers would hold on to a mouthful of oil as they sank to the bottom. And then when they reached the desired depth, they would expel the oil into the water, and this would actually light up their surroundings. According to Pliny the Elder, in his natural history, divers had a number of predators to contend with, including a fish that appeared as a sort of cloud or fog, and that it would get above them and prevent them from rising to the surface, and they would carry spikes that they would stab at this creature with. Pliny actually expresses some skepticism here. However, he does mention sharks as a serious hazard, and that it is best to actually try to scare sharks away. He says that sharks are just as afraid of people as people are of them, and that often divers are attacked by sharks as they're trying to get back into the boats, and they have to be assisted by their fellow divers on deck. surface for periods of time. There's a statement in a book called The Problemata, or Problems, included in the corpus of works attributed to Aristotle, although there's a good chance that it was written by one of his students instead. But this describes divers taking cauldrons down with them that were turned upside down and contained pockets of air that they could stick their heads in and take additional breaths. 
Alexander the Great may have tested some kind of a glass diving bell, an early version of a bathysphere, known as a colympha. It comes from something that's often called the Alexander Romance. This seems to have been produced late in the Roman period, and as the centuries went on into the medieval period, it became embroidered and expanded into something more and more fanciful. But as it stands, the story is that Alexander and some of his men were aboard a ship at sea. The sea is not specified. Based on his expedition by land getting to the western border of modern-day India, it could have been the Indian Ocean, the Persian Gulf. The reason he does this is that his men kill a giant crab on the seashore, and when they cut open its shell, they find amazing pearls, bigger than anything anyone had seen before, and Alexander wanted to find more of these pearls. So he has this large barrel of white glass, which I guess they just happen to have lying around, placed inside an iron cage, which I guess they also happen to just have lying around. There was a hole in the bottom of the bell, which would allow him to grab things off of the bottom of the sea, like pearls. Actually, an unsealed opening like that would have made descent to any real depth impossible due to the immense pressures involved, but we'll leave that aside for the moment. So the bell is lowered by a chain to the bottom of the sea. However, a giant fish grabs hold of the cage in its jaws, begins to drag Alexander and the boat that he's attached to, drags them all the way up to the seashore, and the fish crushes the cage in its jaws, and Alexander barely escapes with his life. In addition to his relief at having survived this ordeal, Alexander is said to have learned a lot about human life by watching the larger fish swallow the smaller fish. Which, as a great conqueror, he pretty much knew anyway. He didn't have to go below the waves to learn that fact. In the later medieval versions, the tale accrues more and more details, and they get increasingly bizarre. One is that he took animals in the diving bell with him, a dog, a cat, and a rooster, the cat being there to somehow purify the air, not sure how that would have worked, and that he ran into trouble and actually killed the rooster because of a superstitious idea that the sea rejected blood so that spilling the blood of the creature into the water beneath the bell would cause the diving bell to suddenly ascend. Yet another detail grafted onto the story even later in time speaks of his most famous wife, Roxana, betraying him, having an affair, and that she and her lover decided to leave Alexander on the bottom by unfastening the chain from the deck. And this is why he had to kill the animal in order to return to the surface. For that to have worked, of course, Roxana and her lover would have had to have been the only crew aboard the ship. The Alexander Romance honestly deserves an episode all its own. It includes such choice tidbits as Alexander's army getting into a battle with plant men that had hands like saws, trees that contained a perfume sap, but when Alexander ordered his men to cut into the plants to collect that sap, they were suddenly attacked by invisible entities that whipped at their skin. He also captures a hairy man-creature, puts him in a cage, and for some strange reason orders a naked woman to be brought to him, I guess just to see what he would do. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, the ape-man proceeded to eat the woman, so they pulled her away. No word on whether she survived the attack or not. And there's also a story of Alexander getting aboard a flying machine as a nice little counterpoint to the diving bell. 
He gets aboard an oxide basket pulled by birds. What gets the birds to flap so hard and pull on the basket is a piece of horse liver stuck at the end of a spear that they are trying to get at. Last but not least, after hearing an oracle predict his own death, Alexander becomes very despondent, but a dwarf cheers him up by getting him to look at the humorous side of his fate, whatever that would be. Thanks for joining me today on this deep dive. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.